We are back in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 this morning. And so as we begin, as always, if you have the ability, would you please stand as we begin our time by once again reading from the Lord's Prayer. We'll just be covering Matthew 6 verse 10b, speaking of God's will, but as we begin, we'll start by reading the prayer in its entirety. There in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, Jesus instructs us to pray in this way. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Our focus this morning is the second half of verse 10. It is this petition for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And at first glance, this concept of God's will, at least when it comes to God's will in heaven, seems to be pretty straightforward. For in just about every image we're given of heaven in scripture, the scene is pretty much the same. Just as we read last week in Isaiah chapter 6, we see in these scenes frequently God sitting enthroned as he ought to be seated. We see God ruling in perfection. We see God's angelic realm existing purely to worship him. And again, in that passage in Isaiah, we read last week how how those angels can continually cry out, holy, holy, holy is God. And, And these angelic figures then serve God every single passing moment, worship God every single passing moment. And in that heavenly realm, then, the will of God is obvious. It's for His worship. It's for His glory. It's for everything in existence to exist entirely for the proclamation of God's worthiness, of His holiness. That will, then, is pretty clear. Having said that, however, any time we start talking about the will of God Here on earth, I think as many of you understand, most Christians tend to speak of it not in such clear terms. While it is clearly obvious in heaven, when it comes to God's will in our daily lives, what it looks like to serve God in the midst of our marriages, in the midst of relationships with with friends, with family, in school, at work, the will of God oftentimes starts feeling a bit more murky, a bit more muddy, And very frequently then, when Christians talk about the will of God, they talk about it as if it's some grand puzzle that we're desperately trying to solve. And people speak of it both with confusion as well as fear, for not only are they unsure of God's will, oftentimes a Christian might believe that if they make just a slightly wrong decision, they can somehow fall out of God's good will. And if they do that, well then they're outside of God's pleasure, and they're outside of God's plan, and then surely life will not be happy for them, surely life will be made far more difficult than it ought to be. As a result, most conversations regarding the will of God, I think here on earth, are conversations that reflect a complete lack of certainty. And yet when we come to this passage, this petition in Matthew chapter 6 verse 10b, it is important that we understand that Jesus is not instructing for us to to pray for some grand mystery. Jesus is not giving us a petition that's intended to to cause confusion or frustration or hurt. Rather, when Jesus speaks of God's will to be accomplished here on earth just as it is in heaven, 
he speaks of something that we can, in fact, actually know and understand. The key in praying this, the key in understanding this, is, of course, understanding where our certainty lies. And so as we explore this concept of God's will this morning, it is those areas of certainty that we'll be looking to discuss. Certainty revolving around God's eternal plan, certainty revolving around our calling, as well as ultimately the character of God. And my hope in the midst of this discussion is we might both be encouraged in the fact that we can know the will of God for certain in our lives, and we can then both humbly strive to submit and enjoy accomplishing that will on a daily basis. That being said, let me go and open us up in a word of prayer, and we'll start digging in these areas of certainty regarding God's will. Our Father in heaven, we do come before you today, thankful for those songs we were able to just sing Thankful for the opportunity to sing songs of praise to you. Thankful for the fact that that we know you hear those songs of worship. God, indeed, that is an amazing thought to consider that we can stand here in Cape Girardeau, Missouri and sing songs that reach your heavenly throne room. And we thank you for that opportunity, God. We also thank you further for this opportunity to see this word that you've chosen to reveal to us, God. We thank you, Father, for the fact that you've made your word clear and through the Holy Spirit who indwells us, you have given us the ability to understand your word. Our prayer this morning is that as we strive to understand that word, we might also be brought to a better understanding of your will, both for all of creation as well as for our own individual lives, God. Might we walk away from here in our time this morning, God, with a better sense of encouragement, appreciation for what you have done for us, and and a greater sense of determination to do that which we know you've called us to do. Father, we love you. We praise you. And this morning we pray for your will to be accomplished in the service, God, which we know means your glory. and means our sanctification, God. So bless this time, we pray, all according to your precious Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. There are, of course, some things regarding the will of God that we cannot know for certain. And we'll get into that here in a few minutes. But as we start, we must begin by understanding what we do know for certain regarding this grand will of God. And the first thing we know speaks directly to what we covered last week. It's certainty of God's eternal plan. While we are not certain of absolutely everything regarding the will of God, we can know, as we discussed last week, that God's will is for his kingdom to be established forever. We talked about this last week when we discussed those words, your kingdom come. And as we saw last week, we can see that throughout Scripture, this plan of God, this will for His kingdom, has been established before the foundations of the earth were laid, and they are established throughout all eternity. You see this concept throughout Scripture. You see it briefly in the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, where he says, God chose us before the foundations of the earth were laid. So before creation happens, God chooses us, His church. You see it in similar language over in Revelation where Jesus is described as the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. And you see it throughout all the Old Testament as well. It's important to note in all of these these passages, what is clear is that from the beginning to the end and everything in between, everything is going according to plan. At times I think we can read scripture and, and come away with the belief that the Garden of Eden was plan A. And then mankind messed that up, and so God had to move on to the next plan. But that's just not true. Jesus was always the plan. 
As great as the Garden of Eden was, it was always, even prior to the fall, intended to foreshadow the far greater garden that is yet to come. Always, from the beginning. And when you take a step back and start thinking through this, it is pretty astonishing for you quickly begin to understand just how many details this plan must include. If you look over briefly at Acts chapter 17, you're given one passage that speaks of those many details that that are all worked according to God's plan, all work out according to God's will. Speaking of this eternal plan, in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verses 24, in verse 24, and we'll read through 31, Paul says this about God. Begin in verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since, and this is where his sovereign will comes into play, since he, gives, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, and even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children." Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul here describing God speaks of this eternal decree, speaks of this plan. In which, again, God determines everything. God determines the life of every individual. God determines the building up of every nation. God determines the geographical boundaries. He he determines how long those kingdoms will exist. You see this throughout the Old Testament where where he describes these great empires, the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, and he speaks of them as if they're playthings. For God simply puts them in place, and when he's done with them, he removes them. And in each situation, in each nation, in the life of each individual, while we cannot fully understand it, we are told time and time again that God uses it all to move his will forward. That it is all leading towards that one grand conclusion of his kingdom being established forever and ever, that which we discussed last week, that place in which God's rule is perfected over all creation. That fits into this idea of God's will of decree, God's eternal plan. And while, again, we cannot understand all the details that go into it, we can, as believers, know for certain that this must be part of the will of God. And so knowing that, when we pray for God's will to happen, what are we praying? Well, in part, we know we can pray for God's kingdom to come. That obviously comes from the Lord's Prayer. Attached to that, we can pray that it happens quickly. This, again, is the overflow of the heart of every believer who rightly sees the fall, who rightly understands their own sin, and who rightly understands that true life, true enjoyment, will not be found until that that kingdom is fulfilled. And so knowing that God's will includes his kingdom, we, just like last week, pray for that kingdom. We pray for his eternal decree to come into being. We pray that everything God has willed from before the foundations of the earth were laid through eternity, that they might be made known. This is a grand prayer, of course, but it is clear. It's pretty straightforward. We can know without, a, without any doubt that God's eternal plan is certain. 
Having said that, however, I, I recognize this is not where most of our confusion is typically found with the will of God, is it? Most Christians, while we might debate on the timing of things, most Christians can agree that the kingdom of God is coming. And so many believers might say, okay, great, so we're praying for the will of God to happen, so we're praying for God's kingdom to come, but, but that's not where our confusion typically lies. Rather, when it comes to the will of God and our confusion, typically our confusion is found not in God's eternal plan, but in our own personal calling. And for the most part, when people are debating about the will of God, they're debating about the will of God specifically in their lives. And this, again, is where a lot of confusion is introduced. For, for many believers seem to be waiting for some grand sign from God to tell them what it is they're supposed to do day to day. And many believers speak as if God's will is almost impossible to find on a daily basis. Despite that belief held by so many believers, though, the fact is when we look to Scripture that the God's will, when it comes to our own, individual's li- own individual lives, is equally clear and equally certain, specifically when it comes to our calling. For when speaking of our calling, we can find throughout the pages of Scripture the second area of God's will, this will of desire, this will of law. And as we read throughout Scripture, Just as God makes his eternal decree clear in his kingdom, God makes it equally clear what his standards for us, his people, are time and time again. You see this point brought up throughout Scripture, but one passage I think is particularly helpful is back in Micah. In the prophet Micah, in this book, in the sixth chapter, we come across a discussion that while set in a somewhat different cultural context, speaks directly to the discussion and the debate that so many people have today regarding how we can rightly serve God or how we can be certain that we are in this will of God. Speaking to that idea in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, the prophet says this, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings? With yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Micah here is is giving these examples of questions that no doubt many Israelites in that day and age would have asked, and you can understand why. In light of the Israelites' sin, in light of all that's revealed concerning the holiness of God, it would have been natural for a Jewish person in Old Testament times to, to really fear the concept of coming before God and become very confused over which sacrifices they needed to make sure to do or or which act of worship must they insist upon doing in order to maintain this right relationship with God. Of course, again, while none of you are probably debating how many rams to sacrifice, assume that's probably not a concern, many of us have the same inner, inner dialogue in our own minds, do we not? Many of us are regularly thinking, okay, what have I not done today that I really need to do to make sure that I'm, I'm still in this right relationship with God? What special separate thing can I do to ensure that God's will is being accomplished in my life, to ensure that God is still happy with me? Because ultimately, when we discuss the will of God, that oftentimes is the concern. But in response to these common questions, look at the answer that Micah gives, a, a verse that many of us perhaps have memorized in years past. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? In response to this this debate that could have gone on for hours and hours about the laws of God and about which sacrifice to make, Micah gives an incredibly simplistic answer. And he says, you know what to do. 
It doesn't revolve around sacrifices. The will of God and, and His happiness does not depend upon these, these specific acts of worship, but rather it's in making sure you do what you all know you're supposed to do. You want to know you're in the will of God, Israelite? Well, walk in a just manner. Walk in a loving manner. Be kind to one another. Maintain proper humility before God. And then you can know without a doubt that you can approach God with complete confidence. It's pretty, pretty astonishing in light of all the laws in the Old Testament, is it not? For, for Micah to distill it all into this. And as shocking as that language is, we see the same sort of broad summary of God's standards in the New Testament as well. Back in the Gospel of Matthew, shortly after Jesus gives this Lord's Prayer in Matthew 9 through 13, and in verse 33, Jesus says something similar. Having discussed the issue of anxiety and again discusses similar concerns that people have over everyday um, tasks, Jesus gives us this basically summary advice concerning God's law, concerning our calling. There he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. Now Jesus here is speaking to a somewhat different situation, but it still fits into this this discussion concerning God's will. So oftentimes in the midst of debating what God's will is for our individual lives, we overlook the obvious answer in Scripture. If you want to know what God's will is for your life, just read the basic commands. Walk in a humble manner. Be righteous. Be just. To use the language of Paul over in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says this, Hear his words to the Thessalonians in verse 3. For this, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matters because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we have told you before and solemnly warn you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives, you his, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, without the words of Micah and without the words of Christ, Paul saying that this is the will of God would, would come across as pretty bold to a lot of believers in our society, would it not? For Paul to speak in, in this broad format to so many believers who are probably going through very unique troubles in their own lives. These believers who are no doubt facing their own various temptations, these believers who are facing their own questions of careers, of family issues, and yet to all those differences and all that mix, Paul is able to say with complete confidence, you want to know what the will of God is for your lives? Be pure. In a very similar manner to Micah, you want to know what the will of God is? Do that which God has clearly called you to do. As believers, while we might overlook the simplicity of times, the same is true for us. If you, Christian, want to know what God's will is for your life, well, if you're married, it's to be a good husband, to be a good wife. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You're in the will of God. Wives, submit to your husbands. Let us all strive to submit to government officials. Let us not forsake the fellowship of the brethren. Let us submit to spiritual leaders. Let us maintain purity. Let us not be conformed to the image of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Let us do that which every single one of us pretty much knows we're supposed to do. And if we do that, we can know without a doubt that we are living in the will of God daily. Regardless of other decisions we might make, regardless of which career you choose or which city to live in or or whatever it might be, 
If you first and foremost seek the kingdom of God, you can know without a shadow of a doubt that you are in God's will for your individual life. This idea comes across as somewhat countercultural in many Christians' lives, but again, it's what we see throughout all of Scripture. One of the most striking examples that, that I found of this is back in the book of Acts. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, I think most of us can appreciate the fact that this is some of the most important work that's ever been done in the history of the world because this is the foundation of the church. So surely these early apostles must have had some special guidance for everything they chose to do, right? Surely these, these apostles heard a special voice from the Lord, were given vision after vision after vision to make sure that they were in the will of God, but that's just not the picture we're given. One example of this is in Acts chapter 15. Again, one of these, these important passages that speaks of sending people out and providing for the church. In Acts chapter 15, verse 22 through 29, we read this sort of language. Again, it's, it's a bit of a long passage, but it's helpful. There in Acts 15, beginning in verse 22, Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them to send to Antioch, with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas leading men among the brethren, and they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch, and Syria, and, and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us having become of one mind to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same thing by the word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you do well. Farewell. It's striking how commonplace the language is in this, is it not? Here again, we have matters of eternal importance. We have the early days of, of the building up of the church of God in the midst of, of trials and persecution. And yet, how do these apostles make up their minds concerning what the will of God is? They meet together. They pray about it. And they say, it seemed, it seemed well to us. It seemed good to us to send these people, so we sent them. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit to lay upon you no greater burden, so it seemed like this is what's good, and so they do it. Now, that's not to discount the necessity of prayer, of course, but it is striking to see, even in these situations, that the apostles, these great men of God, are not waiting on some grand extra word. They're simply doing that which they knew they're supposed to do. They're supposed to build up the church. They're supposed to take care of the brothers and sisters in Christ, so, hey, when they hear of a problem, they're going to send people and take care of it. They're going to address the core issues that need to be taught to them. They're going to provide needs and other passages. They're going to do that which is most obvious. And in so doing, these believers, like Paul and Thessalonians and like many other places, are entirely certain they're in the will of God. They're performing the will of God as best they can. So very frequently, when we think of the will of God and when we discuss the will of God, the question that we start asking is things like, okay, which which decision should I make in this particular situation? Or what's the, will, what's the grand will of God regarding whom I'm going to marry or where am I going to live? And we ask these, these huge questions, and those questions are, are good to ask at times. But those questions ignore the far more important, more consistent question we ought to be asking ourselves daily. That question, again, is simply, okay, am I loving God with all my heart? Am I seeking the kingdom of God first and foremost? 
Oftentimes, answering that question will take care of every other question you have concerning the will of God. For when you look at Scripture, the vast majority of discussions concerning the will speak to those regular daily tasks. And so while, again, there will be things that we are called to do that we do not fully understand, we can, with complete certainty, know the will of God for our lives because we know God's standards. We know our basic calling as believers. Because of that, we know God's will. Because of that knowledge, then, when we come before God in Matthew 6 in this prayer and we pray for God's will to be done, what are we praying for? Well, we're praying that we know God's word more. Obviously, that comes into play. We're praying for obedience. We're praying that we do that which we're called to do. We're praying that the world around us does which God, that which God has called them to do. Again, we're praying for, for the future kingdom, but we're praying daily for this practical obedience. We do this when the will of God is is enjoyable, and we do this when the will of God, as it's been revealed to us, is difficult. Our desire and our hope is that ultimately we might be able to have the same confidence concerning the will of God that that people like Paul had. Even more so, we hope that we can echo the heart of Jesus Christ who who says things like, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus Christ who says the Son can do nothing apart from, from the Father. That's our model, that's our hope, that in everything we do and say, we can do it with this confidence. But of course, we understand that that confidence doesn't mean that God's will is always easy. It doesn't mean that that God's will always leads us through these great sunshiny days of happiness and fulfillment. But oftentimes, that will drives us through valleys, that will brings us through difficult, difficult times. And it is foolish as Christians then, to speak of God's will as if it is always easy. While it is clear oftentimes, it's not always simple. Again, looking to our grand example, Jesus Christ, even in his own life, you see the reality of of the difficulty of God's will, even when it is abundantly clear. In a passage that is so helpful, so encouraging, that speaks on this, we see this in Matthew chapter 26. It's a passage, again, familiar to many of you. For it's a passage that's leading up to Jesus Christ's crucifixion. Now, at no point in time are we given any reason to believe that Jesus doubted whether or not he was supposed to be crucified. Right? I mean, Jesus speaks clearly on this early on in his ministry. That is his purpose. That is why the Son of Man came. His crucifixion was central in his mind, it seems, from the time he understood his role as Messiah throughout his earthly ministry. And yet, as obvious as that will of God was, we read this prayer of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus came with them, the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane, said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. It's incredible to read, is it not? To see Jesus Christ's humanity on full display. Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, who again fulfills the Father's will perfectly throughout his life, still experiences this moment where he understands the gravity of God's will in his life. 
And he understands that that will includes horrific pain. Torture, both at the hands of man and also being removed from the face of the Father. Jesus Christ here reveals the fact that at times, the Father's will, even if it is clear, is not always easy. And so Jesus speaks confidently of God's will, but also prays ultimately that it is the Father's will that is accomplished. And as we know, despite that struggle, Jesus moves forward in perfect obedience. And so we too pray for obedience, but none of us are Jesus Christ, of course. And so there will be at times in which we struggle to be that quick to follow as Jesus followed here. There are times when the will of God is still confusing. And while we can know for certain God's calling to us daily, there are certain decisions we make that are not so obvious. There are certain things we go through in life in which we don't see God's hand at work and we don't understand how this could possibly fit in God's overall plan for his eternal kingdom. And so oftentimes, even in the midst of what we've already discussed, many believers are still left feeling a bit hopeless. They're feeling overwhelmed by by an uncertainty regarding God's will. And so in those moments of uncertainty, in those moments of confusion, in those moments of hurt, we must, we must still understand, of course, where our certainty lies. So if we cannot see God's kingdom at work, if we cannot see the clearly revealed will of God in Scripture, where ultimately do we place our certainty in this prayer for His will? The answer to that I think, must be in the certainty of God's character, who God is. That's where we're turning to when it comes to this will. Speaking to that character, there are a few certain things that we must constantly remember that are revealed to us in Scripture concerning this character of God. And I think first and foremost, the thing we must remember that we know from Scripture is that God is sovereign over everything. Again, this is what we covered earlier when we talked about God's eternal plan. But this is such a key attribute of God as it's revealed in Scripture. God himself, back in Isaiah chapter 46, really stakes his reputation on it and uses it to describe what makes him different. In Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11, God says this through the prophet, Remember this and be assured, recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Time and time again in Scripture, we know that God is sovereign. We know that he's in control. We know that everything is being worked out for that perfect plan. And so in the midst of confusion over God's will, we can at least know that God is in control. And so as we pray for God's will, we're praying for that focus on God's sovereignty. But the fact that God is sovereign, again, is not enough, is it? Because even if you know God is in control, that doesn't necessarily make your situation easier. And to just tell a Christian who is suffering greatly, don't worry, God's in control, isn't necessarily the most helpful thing, at least if left alone. For all of us have been through or will go through seriously difficult trials where the sovereignty of God by itself does not initially seem all that comforting. Whether it's losing a job, whether it's going through a difficult or failing marriage, 
if it's facing poor health of, of your children or the health of, of loved ones, if it's financial difficulties. Years ago in, in my own life, Jamie and I suffered through a miscarriage. And in the midst of, of that miscarriage, I got to tell you, knowing that God is sovereign by itself wasn't the most comforting knowledge because I didn't understand why he would do it. In the midst of those trials, it's, it's tempting to just kind of assume that, that God has somehow let something slip by and many people believe that somehow makes trials more, more acceptable. But the fact is God is sovereign. And in the midst of our struggles then, knowing how much we struggle, knowing how painful these things can be, we must understand and remember that this is still going according to God's plan. And not only that, not only must we remember the sovereignty of God, we must push forward and understand God is also good. This is a, a key attribute to place alongside God's sovereignty at all times. For without this goodness, God's sovereignty becomes something to be fearful of. It would cause great terror, but because God is good, we can trust that sovereignty. Consider the words of, of Paul over in Romans. In Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 32, Paul says this, both speaking of God's sovereignty and goodness. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. These whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Even if you cannot understand the will of God when it comes to certain decisions, when it comes to struggles in your life, believer, you can know that God is in control of that situation. You can know that somehow that situation is leading us towards the kingdom. And not only that, you can know without a doubt that God intends to work that situation out for your good, for your ultimate joy, for your ultimate benefit. And you can know that because, again, this same God is the God who gave us his son, Jesus Christ. So why on earth would he leave us now to be simply confused and left out on a limb in the midst of a, a difficult trial? He never would do that. He always has a purpose. And so in facing our daily situations in the midst of confusion and making whatever decision it is we need to make, we can know that God is sovereign. We can know that God is good. But still, still with that knowledge, there's going to be a little uncertainty remaining in all of us. For, for still, what happens if you make a really bad decision? What happens if you choose a terrible job for you? What if it, ha what if it happens that you choose someone to be married to that is going to be a difficult spouse? What if it turns out that you, you choose something that will cause a great deal of suffering? In the end, perhaps it's a sinful decision. Where then can you remain certain? Well, to that, I would say the final thing we must remain certain of is the fact that God is also gracious. He's sovereign, he's good, and he is also gracious for when we do make those foolish, ridiculous decisions in our lives. We must understand again that God is not sitting up in heaven eagerly waiting upon you deciding whether or not you are going to do the thing that, that makes you stay in his will. God has not set some mysterious will before us and is waiting with great anticipation to see whether or not we choose rightly. 
And if we choose wrongly, God is not some mischievous God in heaven who's then going to take away certain blessings from us and cause us to suffer more than he would ever intend. No, God is gracious in all of that. Again, you see this throughout all of Scripture. Perhaps most powerfully again, we see it in Hebrews. And speaking of our Lord and Savior, the same Lord and Savior who fulfilled God's will perfectly, although he suffered greatly, the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here then is a passage that speaks directly to this, this concept of God's will into our own prayer lives. For as the author of Hebrews says, when we approach God, we're not approaching some detached ruler of creation that is seeking to strike us down. We're approaching our Heavenly Father. We're approaching Him through our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who, who sympathizes with us and our weaknesses, who understands that we are going to be confused, who understands we're going to make foolish decisions from time to time, who understands that we do not always, un, that we do not always see the, way, the will of God in our lives, and yet who still loves us nonetheless. And so in light of that grace, what does the author of Hebrews says? He says, therefore we can approach God with great confidence. Therefore, when we pray the will of God, even if we have no idea what God is doing, we can confidently know that God's will is going to be accomplished and that will is full of grace. And so you make decisions you're going to make. You move to wherever you want to move. You take what job you want to take, assuming, of course, you're putting the kingdom first. And you do all these things knowing that, that making this decision one way or another isn't going to somehow remove you from God's good grace. It's not going to remove you outside of his will. It's not, going to, it's not going to cause your life to go off the rails. It is all going to be used by God again to continue his will for the eternal kingdom. It's all going to be used by God to cause us to be conformed further and further in the image of God. It's going to be used by God ultimately to bring him glory. And so knowing these things, what do we pray? Well, again, we pray for a greater knowledge of God. We pray for the Father to reveal certain things to us, and perhaps we do ask God to make certain decisions clear to us. Yes, we can do this. But in praying this, we are not putting God to the test, and we are not refusing to act until God's given us a vision. No, we're simply praying for these things in acknowledgement of our weaknesses. And not only that, we're praying that in the midst of our confusion, God might, might cause us to see his goodness. God might cause us to see his grace. For if we are to accomplish the will of God here on earth as it is in heaven, again, obedience is not the only concern. It's also that attitude with which the angelic realm serves God. It's with exuberance. It's with joy. For they understand more than we understand now how great God is, how worthy is of worship, how, how worthy is of all of our trust. And so we come before God with great confidence, humbly recognizing that we are fallen, humbly recognizing that we need direction, humbly recognizing that God's will is ultimately that which is most important. As such, we pray, I think, these words of David in Psalm 119. David, of course, a man who, who is said to be the man after God's own heart, someone who himself who is tremendously righteous, 
who loved God, who was remembered of a hero of the faith. And yet listen to these words of David in Psalm 119, verses 169 through 176. There David says to God, let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Let my lips utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. Let my tongue sing of your word, for all your commandments are righteous. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live that it may praise you. Let your ordinances help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Here you see a a righteous, humble prayer of a servant of God. David understood the connection between God's will and God's commandments. And so David here understands that that if he follows God's word, that, that that means he's in the will of God. But David also understands his own sin. He understands that he falls short. He understands that he fails to uphold the law perfectly. And so he's begging for God to bring him back to that word. Begging God to bring him back to his will. And begging God to make it a joy to where he sings his praises constantly. To pray that God's will is done then is to pray the same prayer of David. It's not only to pray for knowledge. It's it's to pray for a greater joy. It's to pray for the law of God to become sweeter to our lips. It's to pray for obedience to God to become our greatest joy. In essence, this prayer, this petition, is, is the foundation for everything else we pray. For in light of our confusion, in light of our fallenness, in light of our failures, in light of, of how great God is, and how minor we are, how weak we are, this prayer is a recognition Again, of the godness of God. It's a, it's a prayer in which we are laying everything before the cross and begging God to simply lead us and give us the heart of an obedient child before a loving father. This is the prayer that must guide us daily for ultimately, this again is a prayer for the glory of God. It's a prayer for His will. It's a prayer for his glory to be known. Might it be the prayer of all of us. As we close this morning then. For unbelievers. Please hear me when I say this. And do not, speak, do not think of it as arrogant. But, but the will of, of God for your life right now. Is that you repent of your sins. That is the will of God. The kingdom is here. Repent or be judged. That's God's will for your life. Confess your sins before God. Place your faith in Jesus as your Lord and you will be saved. If you do not, the will of the Father will be for your judgment. But I ask that you do that this morning. Repent, believe. For believers, this is the will of God for us. That we might be obedient. And so as we think on this this morning, let us strive to become more familiar with the word of God. For in that word we find his will. Let us, in moments of confusion, remember who God is. Take confidence in the fact that He is sovereign, that He is good, that He is gracious. And as we remember on those things, even in the midst of great struggle, in the midst of great trial and tribulation, might we confidently serve God knowing that His will is not only for His glory, but His will is for our good. And so let us serve with great joy. Let us serve with great confidence. 
Let us never give in to the temptation to live our lives in confusion 